Today on the Feast of the Holy Family, let's start by quickly considering the current state of the American family. If anybody's interested in the numbers, I gave a lot of statistics in the first conference at the mission last year. Anyway, what's the current situation? Well, today in our, our beloved country, divorce rates are skyrocketing. Two-parent family, stable one, is collapsing, shacking up. It's becoming the norm. Over a third of all children are born out of wedlock. At the same time, the birth rates are declining. There's a virtually complete collapse of sexual morality. There are almost unbelievable numbers of men and women who have been surgically sterilized, and the use of contraception is virtually universal. I mean, you can just look at the medical community, too. Try to find a doctor or pharmacist who isn't involved in any way with contraceptives. According to Planned Parenthood's own statistics, 95% of the 1.3 million abortion a year are really acts of birth control, and that's from hostile witnesses. Virginity among teenagers is becoming rare and rare. Porn is absolutely through the roof as our perverted behaviors. And now we have the vision of the state beginning to use force to promote perversions, perverse behaviors in the school, perverse behaviors vis-a-vis adoption, and with regard to these new so-called forms of marriage, which we haven't seen decriminalized, the so-called legal, since the times of Emperor Nero. As far as I know, Emperor Nero is the last one that had these kind of marriages. He was involved in three of them. As grim as all this is, The moral catastrophe is only going to accelerate and accelerate exponentially here very quick with all the federal force necessary as the new regime begins to impose its so-called change. Just think of flames from a very hot place with, you know, dancing around change and get the idea. So what are all these people thinking about? Why do they think we're here? Why do they think we're here? That's a rhetorical question. They don't know. Most of them don't know why we're here. They don't know. But we'd better know why we're here. So why are we here? God has not placed man in this world to become rich or to become famous or to party, indulge himself with every pleasure that comes his way. God has placed us in this world for one thing, And for one thing only, that's to glorify him by this means to save our immortal soul. We each only have one soul. We have but one eternity. One soul and one eternity. For any other error, there's a remedy. For any other error, there's a remedy. But if we lose our immortal soul, it's forever. It's lost forever. Once we see that, we can see that the current state of our beloved country gives every possible indication that barring actual miracles, massive numbers of our fellow citizens seem destined to spend eternity in hell. They're lost. They're lost sheep. They lost sheep. There's the good shepherd right there. And they don't know it. There's the good shepherd. He's alive. 
He's right there. He's got the answer. He's got the right answer. He's got the only answer. They don't know it. So let's leave behind this current disaster and spend a moment considering his answer, the right answer. In this regard, Father Gerard Kelly, S.J., as a brief summary, well worth pondering, quote, In the Christian dispensation, the family is a little church. That means that its aim, the family, is a salvation and sanctification of the members of the family. Close quote. In the Christian dispensation, the family is a little church, and that means that its aim is a salvation and the sanctification of all the members of the family. You don't need me to point out to you that that is hardly the current understanding of the Christian family, even in our Catholic circles. See, the Catholic family is meant to be a living, miniature representation of the mystery of Christ and his church. How's that, Father? Well, the head of the household is the husband who represents Christ, the head of the mystical body. The wife represents the church, the spotless bride of Christ, and the children represent the faithful. Just as Christ, our head in heaven, and his church here on earth are united by the Holy Spirit in the worship of God the Father, so also the Catholic family unit is intended by Christ to be united with him in the Holy Spirit and by and through and in this living union, the Catholic family is meant to give worship to God the Father. And we should think of that every time you hear the priest sing, Per Dominum Nostrum Jesum Christum Filium Tuum, Qui Tecum Vivida Regnat, Vitati Spiritus Sancti Deus, Per Omnia Secula Seculorum. Amen. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you lives and reigns in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. We're meant to be united in the Holy Spirit with Christ to offer worship to God the Father, each Catholic family. Okay, so the husband stands for Christ, the wife stands for the church, the children stand for the faithful. There's one very remarkable feature of a Christian marriage that we each should burn into our minds. We've mentioned it before, but a lot of people don't seem to realize this. And that's the reality that the ministers of this particular sacrament are not priests. The ministers of the sacrament of holy matrimony are actually the individual partners in the marriage contract. The man and the wife are actually the ministers of the sacrament of marriage. Okay, great. So what, Father? Think about what this means. The minister of a sacrament is a channel of sanctifying grace to the soul to whom he administers the sacrament. The minister of a sacrament is a channel of supernatural life, of sanctifying grace to the soul to whom he ministers the sacrament. So what are we saying? We're saying that in a sacramental marriage, the man and the wife are individual channels of grace to each other, in their relationship. And that doesn't end at the wedding. It begins at the wedding. As someone once pointed out, this means that at the physical level, their first wedding gift to each other is the gift of each to the other. 
And at the spiritual level, their first wedding gift to each other is sanctifying grace, supernatural life. God has given them each an absolutely incredible supernatural power, the power to actually give supernatural life to their partner. It's extraordinary. In other words, in every sacramental marriage, the husband can honestly say that his wife is a means by which he returns to God. In every sacramental marriage, the wife can honestly say that her husband is a means by which she returns to God. A sacramental marriage is a mutual assistance pact between a man and a woman to help each other to get to know and love and serve God in this life and to be happy with him forever in the next. We could say a lot more, far, far more about Christian marriage, but it's more than enough to give us some notion of the unbelievable difference between the insane notions of marriage and family life proposed to us on the one hand by this pagan culture of death in which we all find ourselves immersed, that these relationships are some sort of fluid, flexible, man-made arrangements largely concerned with convenient access to someone else's body. And on the other hand, the authentic notion of marriage and family is taught by Christ himself and demonstrated by the Holy Family, that it's a God-given means of helping souls grow in holiness and attain salvation. So it's a means of grace. It's a state of holiness. It's a vocation. It's a vocation. Now, with all that by way of an introduction, I want to turn most particularly to the young people. And speaking to the young people, tell you some of the things about the vocation of marriage that I sorely wish the priests would have told the generations that came of age in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. This is only going to be a brief overview. Any one of the particular points we could preach a whole sermon on, I won't do that to you. It's just a brief overview. According to St. John Bosco, only about a third of you have a vocation to the priesthood or the religious life. That means most of you have a vocation to marriage. And it is a vocation, a call to holiness given to you by God. And we want to remember or at least never forget, that holy families don't just happen. Holy families don't just happen. If we want to know what just happens, look around outside. That's what just happens. The culture of death is what just happens. Holy families don't just happen. It's a vocation. So the first point, we must take care to be certain of our vocation, in this case, to marriage. In this regard, St. Alphonsus says, quote, He who errs in his vocation exposes himself to greater danger than if he broke a commandment. For if he violates a particular commandment, he may rise again from his fall and begin again to walk in the right path. But he who errs in his vocation mistakes the way itself. Hence, the longer he travels in it, the more distant he is from home. To him we may justly apply the words of St. Augustine, You run well, but on the wrong road. It is necessary to be persuaded of the truth of what St. Gregory the Great says, that our eternal salvation depends principally on bracing the state to which God has called us. Close quote. St. Alphonsus, Bishop and Doctor of the Church. Our eternal salvation depends principally 
upon embracing the state to which God has called us. Okay, so how are we supposed to know that vocation? In the first place, we need to pray. If our eternal salvation depends principally upon embracing the state to which God calls us, then we better start asking God in prayer what he has in mind. Everyone of you young people that is not yet sure of his vocation needs to pray to find this out. That's why, if you notice, about every two or three weeks in the bulletin, we have that prayer for a vocation, to know your vocation in life. And we also have another prayer that you should pray, which is a prayer for a good wife or a husband. And you should pray that every day unless it becomes abundantly clear to you that you have a vocation of the priesthood or religious life, okay? We've got to start with prayer. And don't worry if you have a vocation of the priesthood or religious life. It won't blow up in your face. I, my dad gave me that prayer for a good wife. I prayed it for years. Here, I'm a priest. It won't hurt. But you want to know what your vocation is. You keep praying. Then you pray up. Okay, now then, suppose you discover you have a vocation to marriage. At the very minute you realize that, you need to start praying more particularly for your future spouse. It'll be pure, it'll be a godly man, she'll be a model wife and a mother, etc. Ask your confessor, ask your parents for specific recommendations, okay? We need to pray for them. That applies to all vocations. I was praying for you all for seven years before I met any of you. Anyway, so prayer comes first. And along with that... You have to work on your growth in virtue and overcoming your principal fault and so forth. We talk about that a lot. We're not going to say anything about that here, except that if you're lazy, conquer it or forget about getting married. You either get over laziness or forget about marriage, period. Vocations are work, and marriage certainly is. Now comes preparation for your vocation. By preparation, we don't mean reaching a magic age like 21 or some nonsense like that. We mean intelligent planning and training and preparing yourself. Priests, the priests spent years and years preparing to do what we do, so you're not going to get any pity from us here. Any vocation is a lot of work, and we need to prepare ourselves. Holy families don't just happen. And in marriage, you have a division of labor. So it's only prudent to start thinking about that. The kind of things, these are just examples, but the kind of things that you can start working on now. Every young woman should know how to cook and to sew and to can and to live frugally. Every young man should know how to live frugally, do common household repairs, be handy, uh, you know, grow a garden. And you should know how to cook. Boy, I've lived with some guys that boiling a cup of coffee would be a real, real challenge. What if your wife and kids get sick? What are you going to do then, huh? you got to know how to cook. I mean, just, we got to start thinking about it. Opening a can of beans isn't going to cut it. Okay. you got to think, young men, too, right now about how you're going to provide for a family. It's not just something like, oh, good, I want a wife. i got a vocation. No, that means i got to start thinking, how am I going to get out in front of this? And you start when you're young. Don't It just doesn't happen. Talk to your dad. Talk to other men you respect, men in your community, relatives, and so forth. Start making plans now. Don't just drift along hoping something happens. Start making plans. Holy families don't just happen. In this economy, you better be on the hustle, huh, because we're competing with everybody. In terms of higher education... Don't rack up piles and piles of debt. If you got your own oil wells, no biggie. But for all the rest of us down here on earth, don't rack up tons of debt, especially young ladies. It's hard enough for a young husband to make a living in this disaster of an economy without having a huge college debt, which unfortunately may cause you to work outside the home or become a near occasion of contraception. 
There are strategies for getting education without racking up tons of college debt. If you, if you don't know any of them, give us a call. We can help you on that. But don't pile up a bunch of debt. It's certainly imprudent. Another important preliminary. As you approach the point at which you can court, and we'll talk about that in a sec, make a short list of seven to ten qualities that your future spouse must have and seven to ten qualities that your future spouse must not have. An example on a must-have list, a young woman might write things like, my future husband must be a firm believer in homeschooling, he must have an income sufficient enough to allow me to be a stay-at-home mom, etc., you know. Okay, these lists need thought and prayer. Holy families don't just happen. They're important so you have some idea of what you're looking for in a spouse, not this sort of, oh, and you're swooning. You know, you want to have concrete ideas. This is a serious vocation, all right? When you're younger, pray that God gives you the light to make these lists according to his will when the time comes and you get older. When you approach the age of courtship, then start working on them. Write them down. Refine them. Then you have a picture of what you're looking for. And if you're doing it in prayer with serious prayer and thinking about it, you're going to have a good picture. It's not going to be random. You're going to have an idea. Okay? Last preliminary. We've talked about it before, but we need to review this. Remember, this is the teaching of the church now. I don't make this stuff up. I'm in sales, not management. Keeping company with intention of timely marriage is a necessary near occasion of sin. Keeping company with intention of a timely marriage is a necessary near occasion of sin. It's necessary because in our society we don't have arranged marriages. There's nothing wrong with arranged marriages, but it's necessary since that's not our custom here. Okay? It's a near occasion of sin because guys like girls and girls like guys and we're weak. Thanks, Adam, but that's just the way it is. So given that it is a near occasion of sin... No one, and if you're wondering what I mean when I say no one, in this case, no one means no one. No one has the right to keep company unless they're ready, willing, and able to be married in a timely fashion. I will expand on that point of what ready, willing, and able means. We'll get to that in a sec. But what does this mean when we say company keeping with intention of a timely marriage is a necessary near occasion of sin? This means that recreational dating is not allowed, period, close the book. This is not some recreational activity. Company keeping is ordered towards a vocation. It's ordered towards timely marriage. It's ordered towards a state of holiness, and that is all. You don't expect your priest to go to seminary and then be out drinking beers and acting like clowns. What the heck are you doing if you're dating? It's absolutely, completely categorically off limits. For the young men, what does it mean to be ready, willing, and able to be married? It means you have to be old enough to be married. We're not speaking simply chronologically here. There are some guys that are never old enough to be married. We're speaking not just about age, but about maturity, okay? So you have to be old enough, and you have to be able to put a roof over her head and food on the table before it's morally permissible for you to court a girl. You better be really close to it. I mean, you could be proximate to it. You're, 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 you're finishing up some kind of technical school or whatever. Okay, fine. But not on the front end, on the back end, all right? Now, what kind of roof and what kind of food, what she can put up with? It doesn't have to be real uptown. That's not the point. But you have to be able to put a roof over her head and food on the table. You gotta be of an age or you have no business wasting that girl's time. Get with the program, grow up, spit out your thumb, get get going, and then 
you can go after the girl, okay? Young women, to be ready, willing, and able to be married means you're old enough to be married. Again, both in terms of age and maturity. Okay, so you've been preparing yourself. You make it to the preliminaries. Now you have to meet someone. The prayers you've been saying over the years for your future husband or wife are very important for success at this point. It's a good reason to start praying as soon as you know. You've asked God to arrange it, but now he expects you to do your little part. You notice at the wedding at Cana, he made the water into wine. He didn't have to start with water. He's God. He made them pack the water. Then he did the miracle. He makes us do our little part. It's important to remember. We have a part to play in the whole thing. So in this, we have to do something. Okay, I'm just going to make two brief suggestions without going into any detail at all about good places to meet your future spouse. i got lots of ideas, but these are two. One of the best places to meet a future spouse, a good one, is at an abortion mill. You heard that right. One of the very best places to meet a good spouse is an abortion mill. Obviously, I mean out on the sidewalk because they're out there praying or they're doing sidewalk counseling. Okay? If you spend enough time in front of abortion mills, you're going to come in contact with a whole group of fervent, good Catholics. They're active. And if you don't meet your spouse in that, they're going to know people. It's a great way to meet good, fervent Catholics that are very serious about their faith. They're so serious, they're not afraid to be out there being abused by those clowns at Pan Parenthood, by the police and everybody else that hates us. Okay. Another good place to meet a great spouse is at the wedding of two fervent Catholics. At the reception, you're going to come in contact with a whole bunch of fervent, active Catholics. Those are just two ideas. Now you've reached the stage of courtship itself. You've met someone. They fit your profile for the most part. You both think that you might be meant to marry each other. What now? Here's some rules. First rule, you should never be alone together. And in this case, never means never. It's a near occasion of sin. The devil... Last time I checked, isn't going on vacation anytime soon. That ends on Judgment Day. So we got to be humble and be careful. Remember that holy families don't just happen. If you have to travel somewhere, travel in separate vehicles or with a chaperone if you're in one vehicle. If they're available, a little brother or little sister make great chaperones and they'll tell everything. If possible, visiting should take place around each other's families as that gives a much more concrete understanding of the person that you're courting. You get a real idea of who they are and where they're from. Because that really matters. The family matters. So never alone together. Number two, second rule, be very careful with telephone conversations. This is a modern way of being alone together, and you got to be careful. Uh, girls fall through their ears. That's where you get this idea of a silver-tongued devil or... or, or uh, uh, the president, the previous president, uh, you know, up there seducing everybody, okay? So you should not speak for longer than an hour at a time. You should never speak after 10 p.m. unless it's an actual certifiable emergency. I'm totally serious. Somehow, right about after that hour, you start having problems, okay? You shouldn't. Uh, and certainly in the initial stages, you don't need to speak for long periods every day. Of course you want to, but it's courtship. You need to moderate your appetites. If you want to be holy... You work at being holy. Okay, third rule. These are the absolute boundary conditions. This is Pope Alexander VII. I don't make this stuff up. Pope Alexander VII condemned the idea that it is only a venial sin for the unmarried to kiss, for the sensual pleasure rising from the kiss, even if there's no danger of further consent and of going even farther. I'll read that again. It is condemned to say that it is only 
a venial sin for the unmarried to kiss for the sensual pleasure arising from the kiss, even if there's no danger of further consent and of going any farther. It's condemned, and as St. Alphonsus explains, quote, this means that every time someone with sufficient reflection and full consent of the will delights in carnal or sensual pleasure associated with someone to whom he is not married, he commits a mortal sin. Close quote. And as St. Alphonsus explains, this applies not to, to kisses, but to any touches performed for the carnal pleasure. The upshot is that not only is kissing forbidden and off limits, okay, you can do that, you know, the, sort of like the Russians do each cheek kind of thing. That, that's, that's legitimate because that's not a, a sensual kiss. But, but, uh, so that's, uh, kissing's uh, forbidden off limits, but also sort of the, the romantic hugging and, and hanging on each other like pairs of draperies and so forth, okay? The married couples uh, that I've prepared can tell you, you can ask them, I always suggest you don't hold hands until marriage. It's not a sin, and I don't say that because it is a sin, and I don't say it because we're prudes, because we're not. It's not sinful per se, but it's not necessarily prudent. I always say there's some kind of little electricity there, isn't there? And they both grin. I say, yeah, because once you start on that thing, you're trying to get to know each other as dispassionately as possible, so you see everything really clear up front. You're trying to get to know this person very, very clearly before you get to the altar. And any of this stuff getting spun up, and this is not sinful passion here, is just that much more that you're trying to see through. You know, you're getting smoke and you're trying to see in a clear room, but you keep throwing more smoke on. Don't do it. Don't do it. Long and bitter experience of the ages shows the danger here, okay? All right. Anyway, the idea is, uh, oh, yeah, you got to be careful about the long, loving looks into each other's eyes. And they write about this in moral theology books in the old days, believe it or not. I'm not saying you can't look at each other and you have to walk around stumbling on your toes, but you got to be careful. Huh? We've got to be careful about touches, looks, and so forth. The idea is if you do indeed go to the altar together, this is the idea, you'll do so without ever having offended God or harmed each other in this manner. And if you don't end up going to the altar, well, again, you'll part without ever having offended God or having harmed each other. It's a question of charity. It's a question of prudence. Holy families don't just happen. You've got to work at it. We had to work at being priests. You got to work at being holy. Fourth rule: make an appointment with a priest to come in and discuss the situation, take counsel. We're here to help. See, your eternal happiness and mine are tangled up together. We're not trying to get in your way. We're trying to make sure that you get there. See, because I have a vested interest. You guys are, are sort of like my ticket to heaven. You get there, I get there. So I have a very vested interest in trying to help you get there. So it's not like we're laying at wake at night trying to figure out how to hassle you. We're trying to get you there, and then we get there too, huh? So we get in the door. Fifth rule, you should write down your courtship rules and conditions, hold each other accountable, and each of you should ask a good friend to help you keep accountable as well. And that would be something to discuss with the priest and have him look him over. I don't make the rules up. I'm not going to do that. But I can tell you, oh, that's maybe not a good one or, you know, get rid of that one or whatever, but modify it. That's, that's why we make the big bucks. Okay, sixth rule, within a few weeks of a courtship, you should know whether this relationship should continue or not. If not, end it immediately. Marriage is a call to holiness. If it becomes apparent that this is not a morally helpful relationship, end it immediately. Ask yourself, will marriage to this person help me to avoid sin and save and sanctify my soul? That's an important question. Ask yourself, can I realistically see myself spending my life helping this person become holy and save his soul? That's an important question. Ask yourself, can I see myself being best friends with this person 
for the rest of my life? That's an important question. If you can't say yes to those questions, end the courtship immediately. There's no harm. If you've been following these rules, it's not going to be this big emotional disaster like a lot of these are. If you haven't crawled any fences, you can break up friendly. And it's not going to be painful. Okay? Holy families don't just happen. We'll make a comparison. It might be useful right now to make a slight comparison between the vocation of marriage and the vocation to priesthood or religious life. Okay? St. Alphonsus, according to St. Alphonsus, a man should stay in the world rather than go to a lax monastery or a congregation or almost any diocese. And he's a diocesan bishop, by the way. And he's writing a long time ago. Why? Because if he goes to a crazy monastery congregation, St. Alphonsus warns, quote, once he joins such a lax order, he will begin to act like the others. Close quote. In regards to studying for a diocese, the holy doctor of moral theology, who was himself a diocesan bishop, notes that, quote, if a boy wants to become a Dawson priest, the confessor should not be quick to agree without a long and thorough test of the young man's upright motives, of his knowledge, of his capabilities. Dawson priests have the same and even greater obligations than religious have, and yet they must live surrounded by the dangers of the world. Consequently, to be a good Dawson priest, he must be careful to lead an exemplary life, cut off from the world's pleasures and from sinful men, and given to prayer and frequenting of the sacraments. But who is this and we shall praise him? He's making a play from the breviary. He's inferring he's a saint. Without this, the Dawson priest will place himself in a state of almost certain damnation. Close quote, St. Alphonsus. The parallels are obvious. That's why I use that. Just as it's better for someone like me to remain single and in the world than to go into a lax congregation, so also it's better for someone with vocation of marriage to be single and lonely and saved than married to someone who will not help you get to heaven. We're in a battle royal to save our immortal souls. And if we join ourselves to the wrong congregation, or you join yourselves to the wrong spouse, the result may very well be eternal damnation. We may very well find ourselves lost. Lost for all eternity. Now all this... Just a sketchy outline, a bare-bones overview to give you young people with a vocation of marriage some ideas of how to prepare yourself for this mission that God has chosen for you. Remember that Christian marriage is a call from God to a particular man and a particular woman to cooperate with him. It's a vocation. Like all vocations, Christian marriage is a means. It's not an end. It's a means. The end is eternal life. Your goal is to spend eternity together with your whole family, immersed in the joyful presence of our Lord. So let's close with those beautiful thoughts written by Bishop Toth some seven years ago. We've heard them before, but they certainly bear repeating. Bishop Toth, quote, It is a great joy if a wife can say to her husband, I can thank you that I have such strong support in life that I have such good children. It's a great joy if a husband can say to his wife, I can thank you that I have such an understanding life companion and such a peaceful home. But the greatest joy of all will be if someday they can say to each other, I can thank you that I have attained eternal life. Close quote. 
greatest joy of all will be if someday they can say to each other, I can thank you that I've attained eternal life. Amen.